You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It's fair to be skeptical of any new deal that will lead to natural resource extraction on Indigenous land. Canadian governments and resource companies don't exactly have a good track record here, to put it extremely mildly. So yeah, it's fair to take a wait-and-see approach. But even with that said, last week was a very good week for putting more power over the land back in the hands that once held it. The four Treaty 8 First Nations to sign Friday morning are Fort Nelson, so too Halfway River and Doig River. They will have more say in decisions in their territories. Those include wildlife co-management, land use plans and protections, funding for restoration, access to revenue and education about Treaty 8 itself. We've always wanted the, you know, a seat at the table and for decades. It's been a long time coming and several years in the making. That deal was signed with the B.C. government. It is believed that more will soon follow. Elsewhere in the province, meanwhile, a coal company struck a deal with an Indigenous community that would give the Indigenous leadership veto power over any decisions regarding a proposed $400 million mining venture. If you ask people who have followed the fight for Indigenous control over their land for years, they're using terms like unprecedented. It's a good sign. How did these deals come to be? How much power is really changing hands here? And what exactly will we have to see before the skepticism, which is entirely warranted, starts to give way to hope? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Leyland Checo is a reporter for The Guardian, based in Toronto. He's covered these stories and these deals for years. Hey, Leyland. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you making the time to chat about these issues. Yeah, and and it's a really fascinating one because it's, uh, I think, hopefully, maybe the change or the beginning of the change people have been hoping for in these kind of deals. It was, admittedly, for someone who's covered these issues over the years, a really exciting week and in many ways unprecedented to have just two different agreements struck in the same week in, in a province where we've seen a lot of the the issues really kind of leading how the country's going to go on, on how Indigenous nations, the government and companies understand resource development. Let's maybe start there, because I think this is the context that makes the last week so fascinating. Can you explain kind of historically, I know there's obviously a lot of weight behind this, how involved Indigenous communities have typically been in in natural resource deals with mining and pipeline companies or governments that want to make them? Historically, Indigenous nations have been heavily involved. If you say involvement is, it happens on their territory. Right. But if you want to look at whether or not these nations have been at the table, if they've been the ones dictating the terms or at least setting the terms for companies and governments to mine or extract natural gas and oil from their lands, they've been pretty absent. Now, we've got a number of cases in which these nations are beneficiaries of revenue sharing agreements but they really have little to no say. And what's been really interesting over the last few years is this issue of duty to consult. Mm-hmm. And that's an obligation the Crown has, be it the federal, the provincial government, to when a proposed project is going to happen on an Indigenous nation's territory, to consult with them. And 
that is a seemingly easy concept that is just mired in legal difficulties and confusion because no one quite for the longest time knew what it meant to consult. Does it mean, you know, you knock on the door, you say, hey, we'd like to tell you about this project. Would you like it to proceed? Does it mean that they can check a bunch of boxes and say, we talked to you about it, but it's still going to happen? Does a community have the right to say no? There, there was just so much uncertainty around what it meant for a government to consult with a nation when a resource project was was kind of up for debate. And so in the past uh, decade or so, as a result of that consultation or lack of consultation, how have we seen that play out on the ground? What's been the result that I think most Canadians would associate with that? So we, we've seen some really interesting stuff happening both in, in British Columbia and I also think actually in the territory of Nunavut that has been really helpful in, in terms of understanding where things are going. Um, so I think people in BC are, are really aware of the protests we've seen over pipeline projects, you know, both the Trans Mountain project that the, the federal government bought and, and more recently the Coastal Gas Link project that goes through its Soatan territory. And there we've seen just kind of a pretty bitter fight over what it means to have been consulted, what it means to consent to a project. But in, in 2017, up in Nunavut, um, in, in the community of Clyde River, there was a project that would use seismic testing in an area where narwhal um, were known to migrate. And, and the narwhal are a key food source for the community up in Clyde River. And that company that was going to do the seismic testing went to the, the community number of consultation meetings, number of discussions with them, and community members raised a lot of concerns about, about what it meant. And the company said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we hear you, we hear you, but we're still going to go ahead with the project. So Clyde River you know, brought that to court, and, and it went through the various levels of, of the court system. And in the end, the Supreme Court sided with them to say, you know, duty consult needs to mean something more than just I checked a bunch of boxes. Right. And that 27 decision in Clyde River, I think, really reshaped how people across the country thought of what it meant to consult with a First Nation or with a community whose livelihood, whose food source and kind of just whose land would just be completely transformed by a project. So tell me about the deals that have been the focus of the last week and how they reflect uh, the changing understanding of duty to consult. And we can get into each of the individual deals as we go, but just overall, like how different has this been from the past and, and why? So we had a really exciting week last week when it came to understanding how companies and Indigenous nations were going to see eye to eye on resource projects. So last week, the Yakut Aknukit, uh, also known as the Tobacco Plains Indian Band, signed what is, I think, you know, in many ways, an unprecedented deal with a coal company. And, and what the coal company did was they went to this, this community and said, hey, we recognize this is your territory. We should be speaking with you about what we want to do on your land. Hmm. We will get the federal approval in the environmental process. We'll get the provincial approval. But we recognize that this mine that we want to open, this metallurgical coal mine, is very much in your territory. It will affect your quality of life. It will affect the natural resources around you. And so we want to come to you recognizing that you are, in their mind, a legitimate government. And, and we want you to be the regulator of this project. We know there's 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 boxes we need to check in terms of, of kind of federal environmental assessment. But we want to work with you throughout this process. We want you to have, and this is the, the term that everyone has, has been waiting for, we want you to have a veto 
in this project. Hmm. Because for, for years, this, this idea of, of whether or not duty to consult would have a veto process has, has really never been there. Right. And, and I think what, what made the deal last week so interesting is that about uh, eight years or so ago in the, uh, the Kamloops region, a nation kind of did up their own environmental assessment on a proposed mine. And they found that, you know, the mine was not going to meet, um, you know, their cultural requirements, their environmental requirements. And they presented to the company. And this was kind of like a, a kind of a First Nation going a bit rogue. Okay. Like the company hadn't asked for this environmental assessment. And they said, you know what, no mine on our land. And, and the project was ultimately rejected by both the feds and the province. But it really was the first time in which we saw a First Nation kind of take matters into their own hand and and attempt to kind of say, this is the requirements that you would have to meet for us to fully approve this project. Now, the difference between that was that the company wasn't really involved in in kind of soliciting or requesting an environmental assessment from the nation. But with the Yakurak no Kit, like this is the first time we've really seen a company go to a community and say, we want to be equal partners with you. And we want to work with you, not just initially on the project, but throughout the life. I mean, this is a 25-year project. So we want to work with you each year and make sure that our work in this mine meets every expectation that you have. So how does the company view this deal from a business point of view? And I'm asking this question um, because I know that that they will say that it's about doing the right thing and going to the people who this will most impact and who who they consider um, the government of the land, which is great. And like, that's why we're talking about this today. But there also must be a reason on their end that it makes business sense for them to hand over veto power to, to a people that have traditionally not had that power over deals like this. I actually posed this question to the company. You know, what is the business sense of this? Yeah. And, and I mean... It, it, it feels in many ways as though it's like this weird time in which the business and the goodwill kind of come together because businesses, especially in the natural resources sector, love stability and knowing that they can keep doing business. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, a representative of the company told me, look, we look at the landscape right now and we ask ourselves, is it riskier to make an agreement with this community, giving them a full veto on the project? and get their buy-in or run the risk of checking all the boxes that we did on the federal and provincial assessments for the environment. And then 10 years down the road, we're hit with a lawsuit. Right. Because that's what we've really seen is that the communities are, are really pushing back and saying, hey, you know, you to the governments, you approve these projects, but but we didn't consent. We didn't, we didn't have the input that we need. And so I think this company is basically saying like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna roll the dice. And we're going to really center this community as, as the, the people that we need to, to get approval from, because in many ways, this is maybe our best chance to insulate ourselves from litigation, from protests, from pushback, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So that they, you know, they acknowledge that there is that business case to it. But, but in many ways, you know, they might have found the right time to really test that out because you know, as, as we talked about earlier, like this string of court cases that are all going the way of, of indigenous nations that are fighting these these resource projects, you know, like the writing's on the wall for a lot of these companies. Um, and, and, and so if, if stability is what they want, this might be the, the easiest and, and best way forward.
So from the Yakut Aknukit point of view, I know this is a great deal. It's nice for them to be consulted first. That's groundbreaking. Are they approaching this as a real opportunity that they're excited about and they want to be part of this development and they see it as a source of income? Or is it a case of, you know, it's great that they came to us first. Let's get on board before this is done to us like so many other things have been. You know, how do they see this deal? I think in a way, like maybe if this had happened 10 years ago, it would have been, well, you know, there's an inevitability. We might as well sign on to it. But it, it does feel that, you know, the winds are shifting or the kind of, you know, the tides are turning. The Indigenous nations are getting a, a bit more of an upper hand or a clearer sense that they are a bit more in the driver's seat. And I, I think knowing where this project is happening is, is also kind of really important because it's happening in southeastern British Columbia, where there are already a number of fairly large metallurgical uh, coal mines, you know, coal mines used for making steel. And Tech Resources, which runs a couple of the big mines, has just been notoriously bad for its environmental track record. It was hit with a $60 million fine last year for polluting a number of key waterways. There's been other proposed projects in the Rockies really close by that are facing pretty stiff opposition. And it's an area in which, you know, coal has been the dominant industry. Indigenous communities have long been maligned and ignored. And there is a pretty troubling environmental legacy to these mines. And so I can't imagine the community went in there not thinking that front of mind when they made these negotiations. And then I spoke with the company who, you know, they're very much of the opinion that they can do things in a much more environmentally sustainable manner. And I think by giving the community that veto and that ability to be the regulator, it really holds the company to an account that we really haven't seen in in that region, admittedly. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Tech Resources has admitted multiple times that, that the selenium levels are like 50 times what is considered safe in the river just shows that that things could go south, definitely. But I think the community is of the opinion that they, with this veto power, can probably extract a lot more environmental concessions than would have been offered to them under a different circumstance. Okay, so last question about this deal then, and you just mentioned it. Speaking of that veto power, this is a great story right now. It's it's fantastic that a company is coming first uh, to the Indigenous leaders to get their partnership. What happens down the road? You mentioned this is probably a 25-year agreement. What happens 10 years down the road if, you know, they don't like what it's doing to the land and they want to pull out or the company wants to do more than maybe what they initially said? Like, how long does that veto power last? Can they pull out at any time? How do disagreements get settled? That, I mean, that's, these are great questions because we we don't know. Um, and that's okay. what makes this deal so unprecedented. I mean, so I, when I spoke with the coal company, they said, you know, they view it as as a marriage in the way that, like, the hardest thing is not getting up in front of the the minister at the altar and saying I do. It's managing that 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 relationship for decades. Yeah. And the coal company seems to be of the opinion that this is a we will meet you halfway and as best we can every step of the way. I think there's a lot of unknowns of what that means. Fifteen years into a project, you can't just shut down a mine on um, the turn of a dime. Like it, it takes work to kind of bring these projects down. So I, I do. I really wonder what will happen in the initial consultation process of, of kind of what requirements the the equity um, will will put up for the company. I mean, I think it's important to point out that the Crown Mountain project that has been proposed here has not yet received federal or provincial 
environmental approval. So it, this is very much in the work still, but I think it, it still represents an unprecedented level of engagement with an indigenous community. And so I think, will this be a blueprint? We're not sure, but it, but it is a very striking shift in terms of how these, these companies are dealing with, with communities. Okay, and that's a deal between a private company and an indigenous community. Tell me about the other one. What happened between the BC government itself and Blueberry River? So it feels like a very wild last week because we got this deal with NWP Coal, but then we also got an announcement that the Blueberry River First Nations, whose territory is 4% of British Columbia, had struck a deal with the province of British Columbia. And that deal was was pretty striking because it meant there was going to be um, a shutdown of, of old growth logging in certain areas, a massive investment in rehabilitation of the land. And uh, you know, a significant curtailing of, of just how much land could be disturbed through oil and gas development. Blueberry River First Nations has really lost a lot of its livable territory in recent years. I think it's like 84% of the nation's territory is within 500 meters of an industrial disturbance. And this is this is a, a community whose territory, traditional territory, is 4% of British Columbia. So they've been on you know, at the forefront, ground zero, front line of natural gas development in recent years. And so the reason we got to this agreement in the first place was because Blueberry First Nations took the route that a lot of First Nations have taken in British Columbia, which is you go to the courts. And there's just been this string of court cases, you know, in the last 20 years, many of them landmark decisions where the either the Supreme Court at the federal level or the provincial um, courts have sided with these communities to say, yeah, you're right, your indigenous title hasn't been recognized, your treaty has been broken. And so last in 2021, Blueberry River First Nation won at the BC Supreme Court level, in which the court found that Treaty 8 they'd signed with the Crown was very much in violation because they had virtually lost all of their livable territory. So this was a, a you know a landmark agreement between the province and Blueberry River First Nations to to really halt a lot of that destruction of their their territory to remediate and and to kind of revitalize it and to also set pretty clear limits on how much disturbance we can we can expect in the future. It sounds crazy that we are talking about this kind of stuff as a landmark deal in 2023. Like we're breaking historical ground here uh, several years into our supposed truth and reconciliation journey. And, you know, after decades of ramming these deals through and, you know, it just, it feels really weird to suddenly be saying, oh, wow, this is historic. And this is something that probably should have been the baseline a while ago. It completely boggles my mind every time we get one of these court decisions and also agreements, you know, between a province and a First Nation that that it's, yeah, it's 2023 and, and this is what we're still talking about. I mean, I think it also speaks to just like the relentless level to which these communities have to spend millions and wait decades for the court to affirm what they have known all along. And there's, there's a case in 2014, um, the Shilkotin Nation versus British Columbia, in which they I forget. I think they spent close to $27 million on this case. And to be told what they have long known, that their indigenous title or their aboriginal title to the, the land was never extinguished. And what makes this also interesting is it's, it's a lot of it's happening in British Columbia. 
And what makes British Columbia so unique to the rest of the country is that so many of these territories and these nations are untreated. They never signed agreements with the crown, or if they did, they were kind of a much more limited scope. And so while we've, we've seen treaty violations in British Columbia, including with the Blueberry River, just so much of it is still untreated land that it really is the source of just like so much uncertainty and yet so many exciting court decisions because the courts are finally giving clarity to what it means um, for Indigenous sovereignty of, of, you know, of territorial rights and of, of title that like this is the breeding ground for a lot of really exciting implications that we'll see across the country. When you talk to other Indigenous leaders or advocates about this, how do they feel? I mean, you know, these deals are groundbreaking. Are they hopeful? Are they skeptical? Like, I'd love to believe this is the beginning of a new era. We don't have the best track record keeping up our end of the bargain here. I mean, that's a generous characterization to say we don't have the best track record. Yeah. But no, and I think I've spoken with with chiefs and, and, and leadership throughout the country over the years about these very issues. And time and time again, it, it's kind of this hopeful skepticism that, that you see. Because I think for many of them that I spoke with, especially in, in regions where resource development is big, there is this this cleavage between what they the popular perception of them is and and what the realities are and a lot of these communities say we're not against resource development we're not against mining we're not against pipelines we're not against oil and gas extraction but we want it on our terms we want to have a say in 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 how these deals are struck we want a seat at the table because we want to be able to use the land that that has provided to us for generations we still want to be able to hunt we need to be able to trap we're not against certain projects. It's it's how these projects have been foisted upon us for years. I covered recently the proposed expansion of, of Baffinland's um, Mary River Iron Ore project up in, in Nunavut. And there, you know, you've got massive local employment in the mine of, of kind of in, from Inuit communities. But you've just got this concern of that an expanded project means reduced hunting grounds. And so no one that I spoke with, leadership or community members, wants the mine shut down. But they want any expansion to be done in a way that minimizes environmental destruction. And I think that project in many ways captures a lot of the frustration we've seen in communities, which is it's not an all or nothing. It's we want to have a seat at the table. We want to be able to have honest discussions with companies and provinces that recognize our legitimate claim to these territories and, and our legitimate concerns for when these projects are on our territories. Because the resource industry has made a lot of companies very wealthy, they've made a lot of people very wealthy, and they've been a huge cash flow to the government. But the people who have been notoriously absent from that, that benefit have been the Indigenous communities on whose land those projects are necessary and are built. And I'm hopeful, but again, I share that hopeful uh, caution that this could be, and, and, and talking to a lot of people, you know, there's an excitement, this could be a blueprint for how we see projects moving forward. But, you know, the track record over the last 100 years, the last 50 years is pretty bad. So I think it, it requires an honesty that has not yet been consistent from companies and from governments in dealing with these communities and meeting them where, where they want to be met, which is a recognition that their land matters. And, and that has been absent. 
Leyland, thank you for this. Let's uh, <laughs> let's hope with a healthy bit of skepticism that things might be turning. Fingers crossed. Leyland Checo is reporting for The Guardian. That was the big story. For more from us, including stories like this that don't have this kind of hopeful ending, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca, and you can call us. Use a phone, 416-935-5935. This podcast is available wherever you get them. And of course, on your smart speaker. Just say, play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.